Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Every time I go to Jerusalem, the richness of the history on display takes my breath away. The glory, the tragedy, the conflict and the sheer beauty of the place, because cities are fascinating and cities are our subject this week. By most accounts, they first sprang up in Mesopotamia and Central America around 9,000 years ago, where fertile soils and successful agricultural developments made it possible for people to live together in close proximity and to focus on things other than food production. But cities can also be crowded, polluted, and let's be honest, frantic. They're also very hot. And here's Rushi Chowdhury of the Alan Turing Institute speaking about the heat of cities on the Naked Scientists. The ground beneath the cities, it's overheating. It's overheating because there's a lot of infrastructure within ground that releases heat. For example, the biggest would be metro tunnels or heated spaces below ground, any kind of heat sources below ground. So if we keep dumping heat into the ground, over time, the climate of the underground rises, which can cause problems for groundwater management and sustainability of underground structures. So one way to alleviate this problem is you can actually use that heat for buildings above ground. With me, figuratively speaking, to talk about the city and history are Professor Wendy Pullen, a fellow of Clare College, Cambridge, and director of the Centre for Urban Conflicts Research at the University and Dr. Joanna Kushak, a fellow of King's College, Cambridge, and amongst other things, Joanna has studied the property ownership reforms that occurred in Warsaw after the fall of the communist government. Well, cities have changed dramatically over 9,000 years, but how much more so over the last few months? What has been the impact of COVID-19 on our cities? Let's start with you, Wendy. All right. Well, I think all of us who are living under lockdown at this point um, and becoming more and more detached from cities as as time goes on, um, feeling that there is a very, very direct um, spatial implication here that we're simply not partaking in cities. But if you look at the the urbanists, the people who work on cities, I mean, there's a lot of discussion at this point about how much cities will change because of of, um, the health issues that are arising. But I would say that what we're getting are are probably three major interconnected areas here. 
Um, one has to do with public health, which I think is fairly obvious because we're going through it right now. The next one has to do with, with climate change, which, of course, has been put to the side a little bit with, with, with the virus, but we're probably wrong to do that. And the implications um, are certainly connected. And, and then finally, with things like security and, and conflict um, and mass migration. Now, obviously, these three general areas are connected, but they all impact upon cities because we know today that, that most of the population in the world has gravitated into cities. So cities really are where it's at at this point, and, and, and this is where we're either going to succumb to our problems or figure out new ways of solving them. And I wonder, Joanna, whether in your research and the changes in cities in Warsaw or Berlin, the two cities you, you've concentrated on, where there have been dramatic changes, are there lessons, if you like, from post-communist uh, Poland uh, or issues of property restitution in Berlin that can shed light a little bit on what's happening on our, in our cities at the moment? Of course. I mean, the uh, COVID crisis is very much linked to property and in particular to housing property. I think two things are visible now more than ever before. First, that housing policy is an element of public health policy. And it's really obvious now because if we have to be locked down in our homes, it really makes a difference. How do we have a home to start with? How does this home look like? Is it overcrowded? Do we have enough space? All these issues are now palpably visible. And the second, that um, that housing regime long term, if we think about the aftermath, economic aftermath of COVID crisis, that housing policy is part of economic policy, is, uh, is part of maintaining city as a city. In many cities around the world, we've been dealing with housing crisis for a long time. In particular, on the level of individual lives, uh, we will probably, unfortunately, start to see that people who will be losing their job because of the COVID crisis uh, will be also losing their houses because they won't be able to afford paying back the mortgage or they won't be able to afford paying very expensive rent in cities like London or Warsaw uh, or increasingly also Berlin. So we see that in a situation of a massive crisis, this idea that the state in this form of another should help people uh, afford housing is also very, very much visible now. And Wendy, what's been happening for cities from an architectural point of view, particularly cities in conflict? I guess the real problem is uh, looking at, at conflict um, uh, that has reached very high levels in various parts of the, of the world um, is that we're seeing more destruction today um, than we've seen since the end of World War II, when there was obviously a huge amount of destruction. Um, but if we, if we look you know, in, in areas across the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, I mean, the, the, there, is, there is a huge amount of, um, of, of destruction of residential neighborhoods, um, as well as public spaces. And we can move into other parts of the world. I mean, certainly in, in areas of the Ukraine and the Crimea, um, the Philippines has a city that is being completely leveled um, because, because of, of um, political um, uh, differences. Uh, 
And uh, so that what we're looking at are, I guess what you could widely talk about are conservation and heritage issues amongst everything else. I mean, there's the, the Joanna is absolutely right. The question of, of, of economics and, and how it is that people will be able to afford their houses, um, but, and, and certainly how uh, people are, are participant in the rebuilding of their cities is very, very important. But also what is lost along with the physical form of the house? You know, that the, the architecture embodies a lot of the culture of the city. And so we're, we're looking at really serious loss of heritage. Um, and very often it's heritage of a particular group of people because these are, these are not benign collateral destructions for the most part that we're looking at. It's, it's very, very pointed. It's very directed at, at particular groups of people. Could you give us an example? Yeah, all right. I'll give you an example that most people, uh, certainly in the West, don't know anything about, but I think is rather interesting. And that's a city called Marawi in, in the Philippines. Now, the Philippines is mostly a, a Catholic country. Um, over 90% Catholic, but but there is a, a, um, a small Muslim minority, I think it's about 6%, and 5% of that 6% um, lived in Marawi. Now, Marawi had some terrorist cells that were reputed to be attached to ISIS. And um, the, the rather authoritarian government in the Philippines um, was not very happy about, about um, these, these cells. Um, they had support from the American army in terms of their strategy, and they went in and they fought a five-month war in Marawi. And Marawi, which was um, a, a historic Muslim city, um, major mosques and medrasas and so on, um, was destroyed in the five months, and the, po- and the population had to flee. I mean, there were a fair number of deaths as well. So there's a destroyed city in the Philippines. And of course, there are plenty of destroyed cities in Europe, Joanna, particularly after the Second World War. I mean, tell us a bit about Warsaw, for example. Yeah, Warsaw as a city was completely destroyed uh, in the aftermath of Second World War. Um, we're speaking of 80% destruction of built substance, especially in the city centre, and then to the extent that after the war, there's been even discussion, should we even try to rebuild the city? Wouldn't it be easier to move the capital city of Poland to, to some other city that is not yet destroyed? But the decision to rebuild Warsaw was in the end made by people who massively flocked back to the city, not caring about the fact that there was nothing there just trying to inhabit the ruins. Uh, and this, among others, led to the political decision of rebuilding the city. And I think the rebuilding of Warsaw is one of the very prominent examples of this history of different reconstructions because it was such a complete project um, in a situation where you had less technology, you didn't even have a good photographic documentation of how the city looked like before. Um, so the historic part of Warsaw were built um, actually thanks to the Italian Renaissance painting of, of a painter that uh, came to Warsaw and uh, did some landscape uh, paintings. But I think especially from the perspective of thinking about cities today and seeing how Warsaw functions today, 
the key point that Warsaw was actually rebuilt with a primary aim of rebuilding housing. So even the heritage parts, even the old town of Warsaw, historically the facade looks like it used to, more or less, but insides were completely changed to serve the function of housing primarily. So because often now, especially when I talk to people of a Syrian diaspora in London, they often say that there's this tension between heritage and housing. What do you rebuild? Do you rebuild a, a historic a historical bridge or do you rebuild people homes? And I think the, the particular thing about the rebuilding of Warsaw is they managed to take those two aims together and build in the, the housing function even into the project of rebuilding heritage. Um, if I could just come in on that, I think I, you know I think the the example of, of Warsaw is in a lot of ways the classic example that's used by the conservationists and the people who work in heritage, you know, as the, this rebuilding of, of of a city and how much when you're not so much inside the buildings but when you're in the streets and so on that it it looks like the old city, particularly the the Warsaw ghetto, um, and that, and it, it is the classic example. Um, but if we look at how cities are today and how much they've changed and how rapidly they've grown, I think we have to ask the question, you know, do we want to simply rebuild our cities as they were? Now, if you talk to people who've lost their houses, um, and for example, I've, I've done a little bit of, um, uh, of work in Iraq where there, there's been um, a lot of destruction. And, um, and what people... Th- want is simply to be able to go back to their homes. Now, their homes are gone. So what they say, well, if you're going to build me a house, I want the same house that I had. You know, I want my courtyard house and just the way it was. And, you know, who can blame them really for that? But um, certainly, if we look at it in the context of the whole city, that's not the way to rebuild cities at this point. Um, I mean, the density has to has to come up. Um, there, there's issues about about transport and connection. Uh, I think we understand public space in in different ways at this point, and that has to be knitted in very well along with the housing. And this is not just a question of housing. Um, and I think we need to be taking advantage um, of a terrible situation when you have the destruction of a city, and, and there's no question that this is terrible, and I don't want to diminish that point. But at the same time, can we take advantage of some of the really bad things that have happened? And whether it's a virus or, or whether it's it's destruction and war, can we take advantage of that and refigure the cities in a way that's, that that is better? Now, at this point, it doesn't it doesn't always look like we're going in that direction. But um, certainly there, there's a real tension between what individual people want and the need to involve them so that they are participant in the rebuilding of their cities. And, and, and at the same time, what the city, in a sense, needs or can be as a whole. And can we make it a better city? Wendy, we've been discussing cities in conflict and changing cityscapes. But what about the heavenly and holy city? What can you tell us about that? First of all, we have to distinguish between the heavenly city and a holy city. We have many holy cities 
in in the world um and they are associated with different religious beliefs and 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 so on and it could be argued that every city has some small holy aspect to it in 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 a certain part the heavenly city though is a, is a concept that comes out of the three major monotheistic religions so Judaism Christianity and and Islam um and it's usually associated with with Jerusalem and we refer to the heavenly Jerusalem it's the idea that at the end of time after armageddon there will be this heavenly city that depending on the tradition that that um you believe in it will either descend in a certain place or or whatever now i mean that's very nice as a, as a story um and as a belief but i think what's really important about it is that there is this idea of of a city that is better than the cities that we have it's an ideal and 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 in some ways it's an aspiration you know it's a way that we can can do better that we can think better you're listening to naked reflections with me at kessler and my guests this week are professor wendy pullen and dr joanna kushak and we're talking about cities and the culture of urban living Many people are trying to figure out how to make cities more sustainable. And here's Rishi Chowdhury again on The Naked Scientists. Growing underground is a very good example of using waste or derelict spaces across cities. Other examples could be using, for example, uh, such farms in environments that have excess of heat and excess of CO2. So the most likely example that springs to mind is hospital buildings or schools, because these are environments which have... a lot of waste heat and they also have a lot of waste co2 and you can harness them usefully to words what plants need to grow Joanne I know you were going to come in Yeah no I just wanted to um to, to carry on for a little bit because I think um Warsaw is known internationally for the rebuilding of heritage but actually it's only very very tiny bit of Warsaw that was uh, rebuilt historically it's the old town and one historical axis while at the same time all the rest it's a completely different city it was Warsaw was rebuilt as a modernist city whereas in 19th century it was an overly dense very unhygienic and unhealthy city that was unnaturally crowded and precisely the discussions that what you're saying now Wendy it's precisely the discussions that were happening in Warsaw from the first bombing in uh, in September 1939 where architects and urban planners working in the underground were saying let's try to use this terrible destruction as a chance to make the city better for life Your example in Warsaw though is interesting because I think that you know what we have is a very historic area where a lot of care and effort was was put into recreating the historic city. And then of course the new city which is completely different um as you're saying. And I think one of the problems here is that we have a lot of trouble in integrating different parts of cities. um we we get too much of an either or situation either we'll make it completely new and it'll be absolutely efficient and um you know if we take what rushi has been talking about absolutely energy efficient and so on or on the other hand we'll have this very lovely old city where everybody's very comfortable but it won't work at all in a in a modern functional sort of way and so one of the challenges of course that we have at this point is how do you integrate um 
got opposites in cities? How do you bring together the different needs of the city that are often very, very contradictory? But you've also got big moral questions in a way uh, that you've been asking as well, Wendy. Uh, how would you respond to that, Joanna, in terms of the moral imperative when it comes to, say, housing or the development of cities? It's a moral question. It's definitely a political question. And it's an economic question because, of course, a lot of this negative developments that we're observing in the cities are the function of a certain approach to economy uh, that thrives on inequality and that produces this uh, uneven landscape. And the well, the, the pessimistic part about it is, of course, the more these landscapes are segregated and uneven, the more difficult for people it is to, to mobilize politically against it. So in some sense, we can observe some sort of vicious circle. At the same time, hope never dies and never should die, because historically we see again and again that despite the impossibility of change, change sometimes does happen. I mean, it's not promised, it's not taken for granted, but uh, that's the only thing we can do is to work towards change. I think I would like to make a plea at this point for continuity as well as change. I think probably the worst thing you can do in just about all of these cases is go out and build a new city. That giving up on the old city And again, we come back to heritage. All of the heritage, the meaning, the content of the city that has grown up in many cases over centuries, um, you can't just sort of leave that behind, even though there are severe problems, and say, all right, we'll start again. I mean, this was something that the, the modernist architects liked very much at the beginning of the 20th century. You know, they had this idea of starting from zero. And I think it's impossible. I think it's also not desirable. Absolutely. I mean, I, I agree here. And I think, well, there are two points that uh, comes to my mind in relation to that. The first is that discontinuity helps people also to overcome the trauma because the trauma of the city, the destruction of the city always translates into individual traumas of people who lost everything. And this attachment to even name of the city or to even certain areas is something that may help them to continue despite uh, despite the drama that uh, happened in their life. And second, when you say about this uh, proposal of rebuilding the center of homes in the new place, of course, my suspicion, my pessimistic suspicion is that it's not, in fact, about rebuilding the city. It's about taking it as excuse to turn the park into profitable real estate development. And that's precisely what's been happening in the city for years. And that's the reason why we're facing so bad situation in many cities uh, around the world. And what about Berlin, Joanna? Because there's a very interesting example of moral imperatives when it comes to uh, vast numbers of of housing and, and satisfying that market. Yeah, Berlin, especially if you look from the perspective of places like England uh, or US, is definitely stand out because the the claim that housing is is right as a human and social right is not an abstract claim in Berlin. It's something that people really live every day. Berlin is a tenant city. Eighty five percent of housing is rental. Um, within European 
comparison, the rental is highly regulated. So, for example, all rental contracts are open-ended. They're not limited to a year or two. And each increase of the rent needs to be really legally justified. Having said that, there's still been a massive push on the housing market. We've seen vast increases in property prices. And we've seen new type of landlords who are not individual landlords who own a building or two, but corporate landlords who, who own vast portfolios. We're speaking hundred thousands of units. And even within the system that actually tries to protect tenant, these corporate landlords have, uh, well, have, have been using the monopoly to drive the rents up. Because, among others, they do have their own legal departments who also systematically search for loopholes in the law. And because they can use their scale to change their whole neighborhoods. The fact that housing now ceased to have a primarily function of housing, which you would think it's, uh, well, it should, should be obvious, but became a speculation. I mean, there's a German word uh, for that called beton gold, so a concrete gold that the role that gold used to have, that you speculate with gold, now um, you speculate with housing. And of course, the basic difference is that gold is not a basic, does not fulfill a basic human need, whereas housing does. So the effects of the speculations are completely different. Well, we're drawing to a close, but I'd like to end by asking you each to give an example of what you consider to be a successful urban regeneration or restoration. We've talked about creating cities from scratch and the problems and the challenges that brings. We've talked about um, rebuilding cities after destruction. And we've talked about the tension uh, between the old centre and the new. Um, So help us as we draw this podcast to a close to uh, leave us with one example that you feel stands out as a model uh, as um, as something we can walk away with and have in our mind um, a success, Wendy. I mean, I can, can think of a uh, a project that one of my students worked on actually in Detroit that was built in the nineteen fifties uh, when when most of the city uh, was was developing along the lines of of small detached houses on very large plots of land. And so what was desirable in the 50s um, certainly is not desirable today. But a more, actually a European-style project that was built in the center of Detroit uh, with, with maisonette housing, basically terrace housing, and, um, and, and small blocks of flats and a lot of public space, and was not considered desirable at the time, um, has now actually increased in value uh, it's become very, very desirable where, where um, people want to have flats there. And very, very interestingly, too, that it was built originally as a mixed black and white housing project. Um, it's become mostly black. It's about 85 percent black now, as far as I understand. Um, and and it's I mean, it's 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 a very middle class sort of, of project right in the center of the city. But as De- Detroit suffers with uh, its its problems of decline and very very poor public transport and so on, that city center location with a much more compact and 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 kind of t- uh, tight housing prototype is is 
is is rather desirable to a lot of people today and and it's it's one of the areas where the black middle class uh, has has flourished so i mean it's it's really hard to say you know what what we like now you know with will that be any good in in 20 years time or 50 years time last word to you Joanna. Yes, I mean, I agree with Wendy that the city is a living organism and it changes constantly as time changes also. We also change our def uh, definitions of success. However, if I were to name one successful example from Europe, definitely the city of Vienna stands out. Um, and partly I think the reason for the success is that they never privatized their land because ultimately if the city needs to constantly adapt to new historical circumstances, to new climate circumstances, then owning the land allows you to flexibly and actually relatively cheaply respond to these changes with public policy. Because if you do own the land, then you don't need to worry that much about the costs. It's usually the land that is most expensive. So on the one hand, Vienna has a wonderful system of public housing that is very affordable, which means there's no significant segregation in the city. People of different social classes live together. It's still very actively built social and communal housing. And actually, it is the city that experiments now with new forms and new architectural and uh, urban planning standards uh, for social housing because they can afford it while at the same time they also experiment with adjusting the city uh, to the climate change. I mean, right now, as we speak, we uh, in Vienna, they tear asphalt for, from certain streets and try to redesign uh, the streets to green them, to turn them into semi-parks. And again, the city can do it because it owns all the land. So I think while there's no one model there is certainly ways of assuring that you have flexibility that allows you to adjust to these changes. And in this sense, I think uh, we can learn from Vienna. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Many thanks to my guests, Wendy Pullen and Joanna Kushak. And thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. <laughs>